0: Immediately after Pedro's departure as head of the Brazilian government, he began by proving that a republic in the midst of unsettled political circumstances, island from its very nature, almost invariably more autocratic than the ordinary empire. Fonseca, a character sufficiently striking to merit individual mention, was born at Algos in Brazil, was educated at the military school in Rio de Janeiro, and received his commission as a lieutenant of artillery in 1849. The chief feature of his military career was the prominent part he took in the war with Paraguay in 1868-1870, where he distinguished himself sufficiently to be promoted to the rank of divisional general. It was not until 1881 that he became definitely known as an ardent Republican, but from that time onward he continued to be actively associated with the ultra-liberal and Republican movement, and he was responsible for the organization of the military club at Rio de Janeiro an institution which had other objects in addition to those implied by its name. Although Fonseca was a warm personal friend of the Emperor, his activity and very obvious Republican sentiments led to his being appointed governor of a frontier province in 1887. This measure, of course, was adopted in order to remove him from the capital, where his influence was considered the reverse of helpful to the imperial cause. In 1889 he returned to a Rio de Janeiro, and entered actively into the schemes of the republican party more especially in army circles in the recently established republican league moreover he was the leading spirit in the movement which culminated in the overthrow of the empire on november 21 1889 the provisional government conceded to all brazilians who could read and write universal suffrage and this was followed by the appointment of a commission for the providing of a federal constitution republican measures came quickly on January 10, 1890, the separation of church and state was decreed by the provisional government, and on June 23 of the same year the new constitution was promulgated. In February of 1891 General Fonseca was elected first president of the new republic. For a four years term, he was set at the head of a government depending largely on its troops, and these found themselves suddenly possessed of a power which they had not known previously. The new citizens of Brazil arrived in easily under the restraints and affronts which were now for the first time put upon them, the press was muzzled, and a tribunal established with the power of summarily trying persons suspected of being guilty of want of respect to the new order of things. There is no doubt that the first establishment of the Brazilian Republic was followed by measures of severe repression, not directed against the royalists for this party, to all intents and purposes disappeared from existence as soon as the emperor had left the shores of Brazil but against the dissatisfied citizens who were clamoring against the autocratic methods pursued by the government. Some definite accusations were shortly brought against the president. He was accused of several acts which much exceeded the authority vested in him. He was charged in particular with numerous deeds of tyranny, violence, and corruption, following on so many precedents of the kind in South America. Fonseca retaliated by the inauguration of more stringent methods than any which he had hitherto employed, a state of siege was declared in the capital, and Fonseca caused himself to be invested with every right and privilege of a dictator, these methods of terrorism he justified by the pretext of monarchical plots, very soon, however, General Peixoto became prominent as a rival to the Presidency and shortly a definite revolt arose in the state of Rio Grande do Sul. while in the far north the state of Pará armed itself in preparation for the struggle against the central power. The Navy declared itself against the government. On November 23, 1891, the fleet, commanded by Custodio de Mello, took up its position in front of Rio de Janeiro, and actually fired a shot or two into the town. President Fonseca was now convinced that the powers against him were too strong to be successfully coped with. He resigned his office, and retired into private life, surviving his fall only by a few months. Since he died in August of the following year, Fonseca's fall was due not only to the measures employed in the government of the country, but also to the financial state of Brazil at the time of his election. Reckless extravagance and inscrupulous handling of the public funds by the various political parties. Together with a too liberal use of the printing press for the purpose of turning out paper money when funds were needed, had caused a condition of affairs which was very near bankruptcy. This condition, moreover, was largely artificial, since Brazil is almost the first among the states of South America in the matter of natural resources and general aptitude for prosperity. Nevertheless, the costly wars carried on under the monarchy had left a large burden for the republic to manage, and in spite of the strictest economy, The people of the country found that the inauguration of the Republic did not bring about the establishment of so prosperous a paradise as they had hoped. Naturally, the blame for this fell upon Fonseca, and added itself to the autocratic methods of his government to render him unpopular. Fonseca was succeeded by the Vice-President, according to the regulations of the Constitution. This was Florian Opaque-Soto, who at first gave promise of a liberal and progressive government. Very soon, however, It became evident that the abuses of authority encouraged by him were becoming even more violent than those of the previous regime, and that the military despotism was even more accentuated. Any governor who did not bend without question to the will of the president was instantly deposed, and in this way the governors of Mato Grosso, Sierra, and Amazons were deprived of their posts. Every official, in fact who did not show himself disposed to serve the new autocrat with a blind obedience was deprived of whatever office he had held, the discontent grew rapidly, while numerous ministers resigned, and once again the flames of revolt broke out in Rio Grande do Sol, on September 6, 1893, Admiral Custodio de Mello, after various abortive attempts, anchored again in front of the capital, and prepared his cruiser Aquedabon for action, soto however, Determined to defend his position, and prepared himself to face the dozen or more warships which comprised the fleet of the insurgents. On September 12, the first serious fight took place, the town being bombarded heavily by the fleet, to which the guns of the forts responded on behalf of the government. The struggle continued in a desultory fashion, and a daily interchange of shots was wont to take place between the naval and military forces. The situation continued for the remainder of the year 1893. As time went on, the position of the government became rather more strengthened, especially when it was reported that some war vessels ordered by Peixoto in Europe were on their way to Brazil. In the meanwhile, however, the position in the south became far more favorable to the insurgents. The revolutionary forces under Sarajevo began a march to the north, when his movement was aided by a portion of the fleet, under Admiral Nello, which had sailed to the south in order to company operate. Curatiba was captured and the march up from the south dared fare to be triumphant. This was to a certain extent neutralized by the interference of the United States warships in the harbor of Rio on behalf of some merchant vessels of their nationality threatened by the Revolutionary Squadron. By this means the rebels lost prestige, and the situation of Admiral Diegema, who had been left in command of the rebel fleet, became serious. On March 7th, the vessels ordered by take Soto from Europe arrived off Rio, and Diegema Hearing no news from Melo, took refuge with his officers and men on some Portuguese men of war. The authorities of Rio demanded that these crews should be given up, but the Portuguese refused to surrender them and sailed away from the harbor with the insurgents on board. A proceeding which caused a diplomatic rupture between Portugal and Brazil. A few days after, the same misunderstanding occurred between the government and the commander of the British vessels, and the series threatened to open fire on the Brazilian vessels. The matter was, however, settled without a shop being expended. In the meanwhile affairs had not been favoring the revolutionists in the south. Admiral de Mello's silence had been due to a breakdown in the machinery of his ships, and not to any lack of initiative of his own. After some time the Admiral arrived at Curitiba, from which point he journeyed inland to Ponto Grosso, where he met General Sarriva, that a council held between the two. A governor was named for the state of Paraná and southern Brazil was declared independent of Peixoto's government. When the news of Admiral Diegues' surrender came to Curitiba, the unexpected blow tended greatly to the disorganization of the movements of the insurgents, and when a division of 5.000 government troops marched from Sao Paulo to Curitiba, it met with no resistance. While this was occurring, the revolutionist cruiser Republic and three-armed transports, having 1.500 men on board, had sailed for the harbor of Rio Grande, the summons to surrender was ignored by the town, and Melo, after bombarding the place, landed a force which in the end was repulsed, after this, despairing of success, Melo sailed to the Argentine port of La Plata, where he surrendered to the Argentine government, who at once handed his vessels over to Brazil, the Aquidabon, the remaining insurgent warship, was torpedoed a little later by a government vessel, and the stricken ship was run ashore and abandoned. General Saraiva in the south was shot in the course of a skirmish, and the revolution was now finally crushed. The numbers who paid the fullest penalty for their active discontent were very great, and the final embers of the insurrection were extinguished to the tune of wholesale executions. It was now supposed that General Peixota would reign and hampered as dictator, and in peaceful circles no small alarm was felt. In 1894, however, the president resigned. And was succeeded by Doctor Prudent Morris Maurice Barrows. Morris Maurice was a staunch holder of civil and peaceful authority, and although a certain section, both of the army and navy, manifested some discontent, the country progressed rapidly under his administration. The unrest in the southern states, nevertheless, although it had been temporarily quelled by force, was not long in reasserting itself. The struggle which occurred here between the government troops and the revolutionary forces was sanguinary in the extreme. After a desperate action, Admiral Diegema, wounded, committed suicide, and his death practically ended the revolution. Towards the end of 1895 the President, true to his Pacific policy, granted a general amnesty in favor of the insurgents, which went far to establish his popularity in the South. Subsequent to a demonstration of local unrest, an attempt to assassinate President Maury's occurred on November 4, 1897 in the course of which the minister of war was killed, and several other officials wounded, people in general execrated the act, thus demonstrating the president's popularity. Towards the end of 1898 the presidential election took place, and Dr. Manuel Campos-Sales, whose candidature received the support of Maurice, was elected president. Dr. Campos-Sales proved himself perfectly able to cope with the modern developments of the republic. Before taking charge of his office he had journeyed to Europe and concluded financial arrangements in London and elsewhere, and subsequently a commercial treaty was ratified between Brazil and Argentina. In 1902 Campos Sales was succeeded in the presidency by Dr. Rodriguez Alves, meanwhile, in 1900, the northern Brazilian frontier, in the direction of French Guiana, had been finally determined by a decision of the Swiss Federal Council. A dispute with Great Britain over the British Guiana frontier was referred to the King of Italy, who rendered his award in June, 1904, allotting about 19.000 square miles to Guiana, and 14.000 square miles to Brazil. A more important matter was the dispute with Bolivia respecting the Acre territory, on the settlement of which Bolivia gave up all claims to Acre, a district embracing about 73.000 square miles in return for a surrender of about 850 square miles on the Madeira and Abuna rivers, 330 square miles on the left bank of the Paraguay River, and a cash sum of Area Code $1000000 for the purpose of constructing a railway in the borderland of the two countries. Subsequently Peru disputed the claim of Brazil to the Acre Territory, and this, no doubt, forms a matter for future arbitrators to settle. The presidential election raised Dr. Afonso Pena to the head of the state in 1906, since when Brazil has been steadily engaged in strengthening its financial position and in the development of its internal resources. Chapter XXI: The independence of Spanish America having followed the course of the Brazilian fortunes from the elevation of the province to a kingdom, from its promotion to an empire, and from its imperial status to its modern republican condition it is necessary to revert again to the Spanish-speaking territories of the continent. It must be admitted that the epoch that immediately followed the War of Liberation was one of strife and bitter disillusion. A certain number of the leaders had foreseen the chaotic phase which had necessarily to be undergone before the benefits of independence and enlightenment could be enjoyed. These, however, were restricted to the very small intellectual minority. The great bulk of the population of the late provinces, now nations, had anticipated nothing of the kind. In their eyes the period of transition had been pictured as fleeting and as of no account. It had, indeed, been popularly considered as but a step from a condition of oppression and dependence to that of complete freedom and self-government. It was not long before the fallacy of all such theories was shattered. Indeed, the very earliest periods of independence were ominously prophetic of what Spanish South America was destined to suffer before it emerged from the chaos of blood and strife and before its various nations were enabled to stand firmly on their own feet, in some respects, but only in some, South America, freed from the Spaniard, resembled the ancient Britain deprived of its Roman rulers and garrison. It is true that the Spanish army had been forced, struggling, from the continent by means of battle and blood, and that the Roman legions had left the coasts of Britain amid the lamentations of the natives. One thing, however, is quite certain, that neither race was prepared to govern itself. Washington was duplicated in the South by Bolivar and San Martin, but the influence of Bolivar and San Martin died very shortly after the dramatic events in which they took part. It would be more correct, perhaps, to say that this influence was overlooked for the time being and forgotten, since, those periods of all absorbing energy, notwithstanding, The influence of Bolívar and San Martín has manifested itself strongly from time to time during every generation which has succeeded. That the age of petty and local tyrants should have followed so closely on the skirts of the great national and continental revolution was inevitable in the circumstances. Spanish South America was royalist by custom and tradition, whatever the nations might in the first instance term themselves. Their inhabitants were bound by these very traditions and instincts to find some leader whom they could put in the place of the once revered, but never seen, monarch. Thus the rather curious circumstance arose that South America flung off the Spanish dominion which during its last decade had grown by comparison with the past considerate and beneficent, in order to replace it by the far more tyrannical governors of their own creation. It was doubtless the fact that these despots who ruled so unmercifully over the South Americans were men of their own race and country that tended to reconcile the private citizens to the very real perils and oppressions which they now had to endure. The social upheaval had been such that although many of these cabellos or despotic chieftains were descended from aristocratic Spanish colonial families, others were mere children of opportunity, whose ancestry and origin could bear no comparison with their feats. Dark though these latter may have been, in the eyes of many European contemporaries, and even in those of a multitude of their own people, the condition of the erstwhile Spanish-South American colonists showed no glimmer of hope for a considerable time after the much-desired liberation had actually been obtained, yet all this time the leaven was working very slowly, but very surely. The fact, indeed, was that, although the acts and circumstances, politically speaking, of the River Plate provinces grew wilder and more desperate, the human substance of the nation was steadily improving and becoming enlightened a somewhat curious paradox. Even during the tyranny of the most remorseless of the Cabilios the Enlightenment was working its way among the mass of the people. The influx of foreigners alone worked an enormous influence in this direction, a country which until the revolution had been governed in a more autocratic fashion than probably any other in the modern history of the world had suddenly opened its doors and its people stood blinking in the powerful light shining from the European civilization and outer world, of which the majority of the colonists had had no previous conception, that many of these should have lost their heads was quite inevitable. A number of intellectuals took Francis Jean Rousseau, and her other contemporary prophets as models, or rather as gods, before whom they fell down and worshipped. The trend of the nation became strongly and even curiously materialistic. In this respect it must be confessed that Argentina and Uruguay more especially have continued to follow the French school of thought. This departure in itself was enough to cause a profound disturbance in the breasts of the majority of those in themselves neither leaders nor intellectuals, but plain men imbued with the very true, if intensely narrow, devotion and piety of the old-fashioned Spaniard. The force of the convulsion was doubled from the mere fact of its astonishing suddenness, and the religious and political earthquake, once started went rumbling and roaring ceaselessly the length of the startled continent. Speaking quite frankly, there seems very little doubt that in the two countries mentioned the influence of religion died in the birth struggles of the republics. In the course of the innumerable civil wars which tortured these lands for half a century and more afterwards, religious emblems were from time to time employed, and priests were occasionally attached to one faction or the other, but the records of these latter are such as to show that they had entirely lost to sight their sacred calling and a number such as Felix Aldao became politicians and leaders of these bands and executed and drank with the wildest of their men on a few occasions a religious pretext was actually seized upon by one or two caudillos who in the most barefaced fashion endeavored to make this cloak serve their ends a notable instance of this was afforded by the famous argentine chieftain Quiroga this worthy was altogether one of the wildest of his kind indeed At one period he stood self-confessed as a land pirate by the ants in which he adopted a black flag, with a skull and crossbones, on one occasion, however, when a religious dispute had broken out among his more intellectual neighbors, Quiroga determined to intervene on behalf of religion, so, when he next made his appearance at the head of his cavalry, not a little amazement was mingled with the dread with which the spectators were wont to regard his grim personality. For the skull and crossbones had disappeared from the chieftain's banner, and in their place floated the words, religion or death. It was evident that Quiroga was determined that whatever he took up should be seriously undertaken. On several occasions Rome endeavored to intervene, but on each occasion was met with rebuff. Leaders, such as Francia of Paraguay, appointed their own clergy, and, quite regardless of any outside authority whatever, made or unmade priests, and, in fact, dealt in sacred things to their heart's content. Francia retained his bishop in a capacity which was little more than that of a body servant. This bishop he had himself promoted from the most ignorant country priest of a most ignorant country. Probably no other portion of the history of the modern world shows such unbridled bridled license as was exercised in almost every republic of the continent during the first half of its freedom. Perhaps one of the most curious phenomena of the post-revolutionary era of South America was the rapidity with which the majority of the original leaders disappeared from the stage of public life. San Martin had voluntarily forsaken the scene of his triumphs. In one sense he was fortunate. Since the fierce rivalry which arose at the conclusion of the War of Independence left his colleagues little chance of making their congé with a similar amount of dignity. Bolivar died impoverished and exiled one of the most sublime and tragic figures of the Revolution, O'Higgins, it is true, divested himself of his insignia of office by a spontaneous act. This, however, only came about when the opposing parties had stretched forth their hands to clutch at each other's throats. In the majority of cases the ending of the careers of these early patriots was equally abrupt. Nothing of this, however, was foreseen when the age of liberty first dawned, Then the men who had organized the campaign and who had won the battles were still heroes in the eyes of the people. Bolivar was frenziedly acclaimed as the deliverer of Peru, an honor which, in the absence of San Martin, none could dispute with him. Although it was obvious that the circumstances about him were changing, and that the once high ideals of many were becoming affected by sordid considerations. Bolivar's exaltation of spirit seems to have continued unimpaired, that he had become sterner and more imperious, there is no doubt. Many anecdotes are told of him at this period, one of which shows him in a light rather uncommon in South America, where gallantry towards ladies is apt to be carried to the extreme. It is said that at a ball a lady insisted on singing his praises with an admiration that was positively fulsome. Bolivar, according to the story, reproved her by these words, Madam, I had previously been informed of your character, and now I perceive it myself. Believe me, a servile spirit recommends itself to no one. And in a lady is highly to be despised. No doubt the reproof was well earned. But at the same time the language reveals a gruffness which scarcely tallies with Bolivar's usual conduct. Another anecdote will suffice to show the various situations with which the liberator had to contend. That a public dinner given to Bolivar at Bogota, a fervent admirer of his uttered and incautious toast, should at any time a monarchical government be established in Colombia. May the liberator, Simon Bolivar, be the emperor stern patriot, Señor Paris, then filled his glass and exclaimed, Should Bolivar at any future period allow himself to be declared emperor, may his blood flow from his heart in the same manner as the wine now does from my glass. With these words he poured the wine from his glass upon the floor. Bolivar, far from being offended, sprang up and, approaching Señor Paris, embraced him, exclaiming, if such feelings as those declared by this honorable man shall always animate the breasts of the Sons of Colombia, her liberty and independence can never be in danger. The story is pretty enough, and doubtless it occurred much in the way related at the moment, but it must not be forgotten that convictions on the part of public men must frequently wait on policy, since it is well known that Bolivar's own views for the independence of South America ran rather in the direction of empires than republics. Simon Bolivar indeed, worked on large and imperialistic lines. As has been said, he dreamed of a single state of Spanish South America, of a great community with a single heart. It is not surprising that he found opponents to this scheme, the chief of these being Chile and Buenos Aires. Even in his own country these stupendous plans of his, though they were conceived in a disinterested and loyal spirit, led to troubled and harassing times. Thus revolutions against his authority broke out in Venezuela. And even in parts of Colombia itself, international complications followed. In 1827, Peru declared war against Colombia, alleging that Bolívar was attempting to place her in a state of vassalage to Colombia. Discord was now rising on every side. Bolívar saw the majestic turrets of his castle of state fall with a crash to the ground almost ere they had had time to rear themselves against the darkening horizon. The tragedy was too much even for his enthusiastic spirit, broken and spent. He retired to Santa Marta in New Granada, where his grief brought him to a death in solitude in 1830, thus his fate supplied yet another link between his career and that of San Martin, whose death in Delon on the French coast, when it occurred, scarcely occasioned a passing notice, in child, as has been said, the career of the famous Bernardo O'Higgins, although shorn of so many of the tragic elements that attended that of Bolivar, had ended with almost equal abruptness. It is true that the great Chilean for his part had the satisfaction of performing one of the greatest acts of his life at the close of his official existence. When, faced by the deputation of those who were in revolt against his authority, he stepped forward to confront them, and, with deliberation and calmness, tore from his person his insignia of office, he knew that his deed had been echoed through the whole length of trial. And that it had caused a shock of astonishment and sympathy in the breasts of even those most strenuously opposed to his policy. In other respects the results were much the same as in the case of Bolivar, the great Ohidims had retired from the eye of the nation and from the scene of his struggles and self-sacrifice. In Argentina the tale was similar, notwithstanding the enlightened and progressive influence of intellectual men, such as Belgrino, Rivadavia, and numerous others, the tide of civil strife burst out and its mad eddy swept away many of those who had proved themselves heroes in the cause of independence. The severing of ties and of friendship was necessarily abrupt, and occasionally claimed a victim. Among these was Liniers, who in the last days of the Spanish regime had gathered together a local force on the river plate, and had dislodged the British forces from Buenos Aires. This, however, did not prevent his execution by the Patriots soon after the outbreak of the war, To enter into the details of individual cases is impossible here, since volumes could be written on every separate decade, and on a score and more of the personalities of this particular epoch in Argentina alone. Paraguay stood out as an exception to the rest. In that state the reins of power fell into the hands of Dr. Francia, a merciless autocrat, who suffered nothing whatever to be disturbed within the frontiers of his country, and who now ruled with a ferocious tyranny such as had scarcely been approached even in the darkest days of the early colonial age. After that Paraguay was destined to undergo its baptism of fire as well as the rest, the process seemed inevitable. In Paraguay it had not been avoided, it had merely been postponed. Chapter XXII the Republic of Peru with the end of the Spanish power the centers of importance hitherto quite arbitrarily and artificially chosen tended to drift to their natural situations. From time to time it is true that the balance continued to be disturbed by political considerations, but in the main the true order of progress was permitted to proceed in check. Thus the importance of Peru fell to its intrinsic and industrial level, and the states of the north, artificially buoyed up for generations as these had been by the Spaniards, now assumed a secondary place in the affairs of the continent. Each state, in fact, had now to rely upon its own population and resources alone, Of the number there were few enough who were not generously provided with the latter, it was in the former asset that so many were found acutely wanting, of course through no fault of their own, thus it was that when the new division of territories took place, many of those countries which nature had provided with an almost extraordinary degree of wealth found themselves in a state of poverty through the mere want of labor which might develop these resources, in some cases this disadvantage has been overcome to a greater or lesser extent, In others the situation continues practically unaltered to the present day. In the North, as has been said, the era of chaos was not long in asserting itself. New Granada had been divided into three republics, those of Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador, while the new state of Bolivia had been set up between the frontiers of Paraguay and Peru. General Sucre, one of the chief military heroes of the War of Liberation in the North, was, appropriately enough, made the first president of this new Republic of Bolivia. At the start an ease and fretfulness marked the relations of each of the new states with the others. It seemed almost as if the continent had become so imbued with warlike ideas that it had forgotten how to lay down the sword. There was, moreover, lamentably small inducement to a life of peaceful labor. The industrial situation of the north was as gloomy as elsewhere in the continent. The laboring classes found that their condition, instead of becoming bettered by the revolution, had suffered to no small degree. It was not surprising, indeed, that at the time these unfortunate folk could discern no benefit, but only added curses from the state of liberation of which they had heard so much, and of which they were now in the so-called enjoyment. Very great numbers of the men had been killed in the course of the war, and their wives and children were left behind in a condition of misery and starvation. Curiously enough, too, although the goods which now entered these countries from abroad had, allowing to the intelligent methods of the new governments, become so reduced in price that I